Today on The Courier Daily... We developed two worst-case scenarios, and that's something that I think everyone that's affected by this has to do, you know, at least one or two worst-case scenarios. One where we would drop 50% below our targets this year, and one where we'd drop 70% throughout the whole year, basically. And then we see, okay, what do we have to do to survive the minus 50 case? What do we have to do to survive the minus 70 case? And a bit later on... We essentially decided at that point to kind of test and open up the the platform to consumers, to kind of you and I, to be able to order food, which isn't kind of a super easy thing to do. But, you know, in the last kind of week and a half, we've had 20,000 signups, which is amazing. But, you know, itself poses a huge, huge number of challenges. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 6th of April, and this is the brand new daily podcast from Courier. I'll be catching up with small business owners all over the world every day, to hear how they're adapting, pivoting, and surviving. First up today, we're in Sweden to hear from a Stockholm-based fashion brand that's had to quickly adapt to the changing times. August Bardbringias is the co-founder of Askit, an independent, sustainable menswear brand founded back in 2015. And in a time when e-commerce sales for fashion are plummeting, I wanted to know, first of all, how the company's surviving. I guess we're in a good position since we've had that bootstrapping mindset from the start, but it's just so frustrating that, you know, all of a sudden, in a matter of weeks, the demand side just starts to collapse. Your projections are, you know, you can throw them out. You have this huge amount of uncertainty. And since all of the things that we wanted to do this year and like big media partnerships and other things, we're depending on, you know, generating that cash every month to be able to put it into the next project the month after, right? Uh, So we didn't have a big pile of cash. And all of a sudden, we just had to, you know, cut all spending basically above everything above, you know, $500, basically, would need an approval from Jacob and myself. And uh, we had to slash marketing budgets, we slashed them by about 70%, removed any sort of fixed marketing investments. So everything that's non performance marketing, where you don't see um, an immediate return, or where you can't measure an immediate return, where it's not variable, had to go. We just partnered up with two great PR agencies, which was a shame that our team had been working on a, a tender for a very long time. Couldn't afford that anymore. So basically, we just pulled the brake because of the huge amount of uncertainty. We were just not in a position to continue spending because if it continues at, you know, minus 70, minus 50, minus 30 percent below our trajectory, but we're spending according to that old trajectory, we would have run out of cash within two months, basically, despite being in really, really good shape otherwise. So it's a really strange situation where, you know, you've revved up, you've built this team, you have a lot of inventory coming in also. And that's one of the biggest challenges in fashion and, you know, in selling physical goods, obviously, lead times are long. So we had a massive amount of inventory new products coming in for you know spring when which is one of our biggest seasons or strongest seasons we just had to call every single factory pick up the phone say like okay how can we help each other out here we don't have the cash to pay for this right now can we split this delivery can you guys hold some of the fabrics in stock for us can we extend the payment terms can we work with banks to sort of get a some kind of guarantee here did any of those strategies work with the factories yeah they did and that was really cool to see actually that because we have factories that produce hundreds of thousands of pieces of of clothing every year. We have some that do tens of thousands. It's it's very different sizes. Some of it are very small, family-owned. They have maybe 15 seamstresses and some that have, you know, uh, 500, basically. So across the board, everyone has been really, really helpful. And our ambition has, of course, been to try and seek more support from the factories that have more financial resources than us, where we are, you know, a relatively small fish in the pond. 
Whereas the small family-run factories, we're actually one of their biggest clients and they're really dependent on us. We made sure to do our part in helping them. So kind of, you know, you know, take you take something here and then you give back a little bit here and you try to figure that out. So you make sure that at the end of the day, all these great factories and, and partners that we have will still be there because, you know, uh, we're depending on them and we can't just push them away and send back orders or stall invoices because we need them. They're part of our value chain. Are these in, in Europe or in China? They're all in Europe all in Europe, Italy, Portugal, some in Romania. So I guess to get back to the question, like if we're in total crisis or survival mode, we're entering the fourth week, I think, of this situation right now. And the first week was just about understanding what's happening. Is this a temporary thing? We're seeing conversion rates dropping like minus 70%. Is this something that is, you know, is it a fluke or is it something that's going to stick? And pretty quickly we realized, you know, a few days in that, you know, this is going to stick. We see the curves, the trajectories in countries that are worse hit by the coronavirus. We see the measurements that are put in place by local governments. And we see the numbers increasing in Sweden and all our main markets, basically. So you're your sort of hierarchy of needs, you know, that old um, dust off the psychology books, you have Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And it's like, we're from the top, which is self-fulfillment, we just dropped all the way down to the bottom, which is just basic survival. And so clothing, even though we're essentials and timeless essentials, is obviously more in the top of the needs. And things just flipped upside down. I mean, you're seeing so many clothing brands now pivot very quickly to making masks. Yeah. Do you guys think about that at all? Yeah, so we don't own any of our factories, so we don't have that type of influence. What we could do is, of course, I mean, what we would have to do is to design a mask and pay a factory to do that. And then we'd have to sell it online, basically. That would be what we could do. It's something we've thought of, but most of these factories are currently getting directives from local governments anyways. And so in Romania, our factories are now producing masks instead, and all our orders are put on hold. In Italy, it's a complete business lockdown for the time being. So all factories are shut. We were pretty occupied with the survival of Asket in the beginning, but now that you know, things have stabilized a little bit, we have put all these measures into place. We've cut our cost structure and we see that sort of, yeah, demand isn't what it was supposed to be, but it's okay. It's not dropping further. We have a fair bit of demand now. So the demand is enough along with the cost cutting measures to keep you alive for the coming month or two. Exactly. So what we did was that we, we developed two worst case scenarios. And that's something that I think everyone that's affected by this has to do, you know, at least one or two worst case scenarios, one where we would drop 50% below our targets this year, and one where we drop 70% throughout the whole year, basically. And then we see, okay, what do we have to do to survive the minus 50 case? What do we have to do to survive the minus 70 case? Where can we cut costs across the whole organization, basically? What are the easy wins in terms of shutting down marketing and, you know, um, stalling projects? And then the tougher bits when it comes to inventory buildup and really cash flow management and making sure that you know we sh- reshuffle our entire production plan delay stall pause to make sure that we can survive both minus 50 and minus 70 so the first step was to secure the minus 50 case which we did within an, a week basically and then now we're observing so we're kind of in observational mode and sales are a bit better than minus 50 so basically right now we're safe we have a, a fallback plan if things should get worse you know for the past year maybe 2 years there's been a rise in demand for 
sustainable goods from consumers. I mean, for a while, a lot of people said they want to buy sustainable, but they didn't really, they didn't reflect that in their purchasing habits. It was kind of just wish wishes. It seems like people were buying more and more sustainable fashion and products and homeware. Will this just completely destroy all of that? I mean, will people care about sustainability or is that a luxury when this all ends? Yeah, it's a really good question. Our hope is obviously that people will perhaps care even more because right now we're sort of reevaluating our lives in a way that we've never really done. You know, we're, we're having this conversation over Zoom instead of, you know, flying in and having it face to face. You know, you're making do with a lot less right now. You're maybe more in touch with your family than you were before, with your friends, even if it's, you know, digitally. So I think we're right now, we're really reevaluating sort of what we appreciate and whether or not certain material luxuries really add value and, and, and bring happiness we're seeing the effects of it. You know, the air travel is basically shut down and all of a sudden, you know, the skies are clear. The The water in Venice is transparent all of a sudden in the canals. And so we're seeing that changing our habits so drastically has an immediate impact. And I think that's, even though this is under very poor circumstances or, or, or you know, harsh circumstances, it's rewarding to see that to unite and to adapt and to act and to change can have a real impact. But then there's, the, of course, the other side, which is that the economy is suffering a huge blow now, right? And a lot of the independent companies and brands and the creatives and, and you know, changed makers don't have the resources that the big companies, the fast fashion conglomerates and whatnot have. They've been building cash piles based off exploitation of their supply chain for years and years on end. So unfortunately, the irony is that they're better equipped to weather the storm than the small independents, right? Be it, you know, ask it as a fashion brand or clothing brand or your local restaurant that just opened up. So we're hoping that we don't just have the big fast fashion conglomerates left at the end of this, but there are, you know, the Askets and the Allbirds and the Reformations and all those great brands that have just started to teach us as consumers about you know, the values and the hardship in the fashion supply chain and the effect that clothing has and our, our purchasing decisions have on the planet. We need these brands to stick around and to be here at the end of the day, because otherwise, you know, if the alternatives are gone, but our mindset has changed, then we're very easily going to fall back to the way we used to live before. Thanks, August. August Bardbringius from Askit. We turn now to Anastasia Emanuel, who's the CEO of Food Chain which once upon a time was a food supply marketplace that connects suppliers with restaurants in London with fresh ingredients. And Anastasia, I mean, we caught up with you two weeks ago in the Courier Weekly, our email newsletter. Back then, that was when restaurants were just starting to shut down or, or go delivery only. And you didn't know a food chain would survive as a company. And you said it was like the 2008 crash for you. What happened then and, and what's happened since then for the company? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the sky was definitely falling for, for the entire restaurant industry at that point. I think the day that I'd spoken to you was kind of either the same day or the day after that Boris Johnson had basically advised people not to go to restaurants, which was kind of the nail in the coffin because there was no business support at that point and restaurants were just left floundering as to whether they should stay open and potentially risk their customers and their staff or to make the call to, to close when they actually kind of had no customers. And then everything kind of escalated very quickly from then. That week we were looking 
looking at ways to try and kind of buffer what was coming. And so we were looking at consumer, we were looking at deliveries. There was a whole bunch of our restaurants who were turning themselves into uh, kind of make make at home meal situations and setting themselves up as meanwhile groceries. So they were still kind of buying in bulk produce to then kind of serve their communities. And then a week later, we were in lockdown. So, you know, the whole restaurant industry just fell off a cliff. And suddenly kind of sales just went to zero. And so for us and our suppliers, so we're a, we're a network of suppliers of food. So every category, all British independent small businesses, they essentially saw their livelihoods just you know, decimated overnight. And the majority, if not all of their sales, just stop as re- all restaurants and, and bars and cafes and such closed. So for them, it, you know, it's, it's a really stark place to be. I think, you know, you'll, you'll have spoken to a lot of restaurateurs and chefs and suppliers probably. So at the same time as suppliers were having almost no sales, the general public were also struggling to get access to food. So either due to kind of panic buying or people being in isolation and, you know, the supermarket delivery slots were a joke. You know, you couldn't get one for for two, three weeks. And it still kind of is the case. We essentially decided at at that point to kind of test and open up the the platform to consumers, to kind of you and I, to be able to order food, which isn't kind of a super easy thing to do. But, you know, in the last kind of week and a half, we've had 20,000 signups, which is amazing. But, you know, itself poses a huge, huge number of challenges. Right. Because I remember at the time you were saying you have this basically an app set up for wholesale buying and it wasn't suited whatsoever for the for the layman to kind of order uh, you know a couple drumsticks of chicken right it's like 50,000 kilos of chicken <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we very much are in the B2B food industry and restaurants buy very different to kind of the individual consumer. So, you know, a chef is buying like 500 pounds worth of salmon or like an entire 20 kilo sirloin, which like I love steak, but I'm not going to buy a whole sirloin. And so there was a whole number of kind of product and operational challenges that that came about with trying to actually, you know, supply to consumers. And we're very much a network. So we have a whole number of suppliers who are set up for wholesale. So it's it was also about speaking to them and actually working really closely with them to get them to put together consumer boxes and to sort of adapt and change their way of thinking overnight from being a wholesale company at heart, you know, producers and wholesalers, to serving essentially a retail community. The question, I guess, for everybody that we have on the show is, are all of these amazing new innovations that they're doing out of necessity enough to sustain the business for the long term? Or does it all come back down to government assistance and and grants and loans? So it's complex because when the restaurants closed and when we went into lockdown, as I said, we work on invoicing. There's a huge amount of money that is owed from restaurants to suppliers. That's currently in limbo right now because restaurants are closed. They either have no way of paying it or they can't pay it currently. And so there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of really exciting things that are happening on the consumer side. Will it sustain the business on its own? No, there needs to be assistance, but we have applied for the business loan. We're speaking to investors. We're showing them that there is actually a really exciting opportunity, both, you know, when the restaurant industry comes back, you know, we were a very, very viable, very successful business before this happened and will be afterwards. But there's also this really exciting consumer piece. But the simple answer is no, there needs to be external support. 
finally, Anastasia, I know you're actually not feeling that well. You think you might even have the, the dreaded uh, illness. Yeah. It's suspected. I mean, obviously you can't get tested, but I have pretty much all the symptoms. So it came on kind of last Thursday and I remember slacking the team being like, oh, I don't feel very well, but I think it's just, you know, it's been two weeks of really hard work and I have a four month old. So, I, you know, I was like, I'm just a bit tired. And my colleagues were like, yeah, you know, maybe just rest up, you'll be fine. And then I remember slacking them at two in the morning saying, my temperature has hit 38.8. I think there's a, there's a small chance <laughs> that I might have contracted this, but it'll be fine. And to be honest, actually, I you know worked throughout and it was actually a really good distraction because I had to isolate from my four-month-old, who's very cute. And so it was good to be able to throw myself into, into food chain and, and not kind of feel too woeful. But I'm, I'm definitely on the other side of it. So yeah, can't complain, but <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a really intense few weeks for sure. Anastasia Emanuel there from Food Chain. My special thanks to Anastasia and to August Barbringias for today's show. Get in touch with any ideas, stories, feedback, questions, whatever you want. I'm at Daniel at CourierMedia.co. Make sure to sign up for Courier Weekly, our email newsletter, for more stories of pivoting, adapting, surviving, and maybe even growing. Head to CourierMedia.co slash sign up to subscribe. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. This show is back again tomorrow. Tomorrow.